Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. The Kremlin's shadowy looking glass war and the truth on facts and on Western institutions continues apace. Here's just a few data points from the past several weeks. Russian media is spreading a false quote attributed to incoming U.S. Secretary of State designate Anthony Blinken in an operation that included multiple attempts to tamper with the veteran American diplomat's Wikipedia page. A viral video purportedly showing election officials stuffing ballots in Flint, Michigan, has been exposed by U.S. media as having been shot in Russia. And in the Czech Republic, President Miloš Zeman, who is widely believed to have close ties to Moscow, is calling on that country's intelligence services to reveal the names of all suspected Russian agents in the Czech Republic and the details of their intelligence operations there. Russian active measures and malign influence campaigns are, of course, nothing new. But like a mutating virus, evading the West defenses is constantly evolving and changing. And today, we'll talk to two people who've been on the front lines in this stealthy, non-kinetic political war and where it may be headed. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the D.C. area is John Seifert, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, who has served as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, a leadership team that guides the agency's activities globally. John is also the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal and, like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back to the podcast, John. It's good to see you. Always happy to be on with you, Brian. Thanks. Always happy to have you. And also joining us from New York, making his first but hopefully not last appearance on the podcast, is former FBI Special Agent Clint Watts, a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Clint is also the author of the must-read book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Clint, a long been an admirer of your work, and I'm delighted to finally have you on the podcast. So welcome aboard. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And Clint, since it's your first appearance by tradition, we'll, we'll start with you. And I want to go back to your March 2017 testimony before the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, because that testimony certainly got the attention of a lot of people. And I think, I think it still resonates today. I mean, you outlined five broad goals of Russian active measures, um, very succinctly. Undermine citizen confidence in democratic government, foment and exacerbate divisive political fractures, erode trust between citizens and elected officials in democratic institutions, popularize Russian foreign policy agendas with foreign populations, and create 
distrust or confusion over information sources by blurring the lines between fact and fiction. I want to quote from that testimony before we go into this a little bit. You said, from these objectives, the Kremlin can crumble democracies from the inside by creating political divisions, resulting in two key milestones, the dissolution of the European Union and the breakup of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Achieving these two victories against the West will allow Russia to reassert its power globally and pursue its foreign policy objectives bilaterally through military, diplomatic, and economic aggression. Like I said, this is one of the most compelling congressional testimonies I've ever witnessed. So nearly four years later, Clint, where are we? What have we learned? What has changed? And how has the Russian threat evolved? So on the adversary front, I'm, you know, looking at what the Russians are doing, they haven't really changed anything. If they've done anything, it's been that they're confused about why they uh, can't achieve the same effects because there's so much domestic disinformation nowadays, it's very hard to break in. Now, this is somewhat a payoff, right, of, of the 2016 bet by backing someone like President Trump. And that was part of the testimony was it works because President Trump also pushes false information. So if he is in that position, Russia today doesn't make fake news or manipulate content that often anymore. They mostly just take what is being said in the U.S. audience and send it back to the United States. Uh-huh. That being said, they've, they've been outed a lot more than four years ago. You're seeing them have more trouble creating covert outlets and covert social media personas that can infiltrate the United States. That's both on the U.S. government side. They've done a much better job over the last two years, even up to 2018 election. But since then, much better uh, effort by the U.S. government, despite their leadership really not having like a plan. Like you really have seen whether it's Cyber Command, DHS with CISA and Chris Krebs, the FBI, Counter Influence, the Global Engagement Center, State Department, all of them are moving forward as if it's their mission because it is and they didn't need to be told to do it. So that part's been great. The other part that frustrates the Russian efforts is the social media companies have done an enormous amount of takedowns of Kremlin content and other nation states now, too. I mean, if you went to Facebook's monthly takedown sort of roll up, you just see one country after another is being taken down in a lot of these places where there still is massive weakness, I think, with the Kremlin's approach and why it is still important and successful is really the peer-to-peer relationships they've built with Trump-supporting audiences, meaning that I will routinely see audiences in the U.S. sharing Russian content or what we call Russian fringe content, some of which was added by the State Department, thankfully, Mm -hmm. just two or three months ago, that we know are part of the Russian influence orbit and are being shared by my neighbor from when I was a kid in Missouri, right? And so I know it's still effective because I still see it surfacing. One of the articles I saw was... A Sputnik News article that said that the FBI set up Donald Trump as part of the deep state shared by a a person I went to high school with. Uh And I was like, how is this still happening? Right. So it still shows you the the degree to which they can do the influence piece. And I think separately, what we should really be looking for, specifically with Russia, is how they're moving around the world and sort of oligarch led information operations in Africa. If you look in the major theaters of Syria, Libya, Ukraine, tremendous amount of influence. And they have invested a lot there in between the elections, Europe as well. Would you say that the threat is greater or lesser now than it was four years ago to our institutions? And not just the U.S., but across the Western world. I would say no change in the sense that it's constant and consistent. I think the threat comes from within through the success of the idea of active measures, right? 
which was yeah. to win through the force of politics. And what you do see is Putin has already succeeded in creating alliances with other authoritarians and with folks like President Trump and other Western politicians that will advance an agenda in parallel with his. And uh-huh. so I think that's the key thing. The discussion about NATO and the EU, we've had Brexit. I strongly question whether NATO would really rally to defend something in the same way that it was designed. You know, I, I, I'm just not sure that there's that consensus there right now. So I don't want to say that I feel like it's reached its culmination. Like Putin and this sort of active measures information warfare have achieved what they are going to achieve. And now it's really like what other levers can they pull to create the domino effect? And I, I think the biggest weakness is really from within now. And they sort of helped expose that over the last four years. So they can just sit back and watch because our trust in our institutions never been lower. The transatlantic bond has never been more frayed. And we're seeing these trends across the Western world. So they can just sit back. I don't think they sit back. I think they just see and exploit opportunity rather than creating the beachhead. And so, like, I always liked it from my uh, infantry training, you know, how we fought the Soviets and how the Soviets fought us. And the Soviets, it was using five times as much artillery, find a breach in American lines, penetrate American lines and focus all your energy there and occupy a position in the rear of your enemy and make them fight you. And that's a little bit what they've done in the information space, right? They they've fired across all parties and people. They've made their connections now where they have real and true natural alliances where you'll see people show up and say, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat, you know, wearing that in a T-shirt. While that's ones and twos, that's emblematic of broader support, though, you know, that someone would show up physically in the U.S. and do that. And it's been remarkable on our social media tracking teams, how much one to one in person connection engagement we see with Russian influencers and American influencers, you know. If you look at the convergence of conservative media and Russian media, uh, One American News does not look much different from Russia today. Right. And you even right. see cross content, you know, right. on there. Right. Um, and that's not hidden. So I think that's when I think about Russia now, it's not trying to break through the lines. It's they're through the lines. Now it's how do they opportunistically, based on their limited resources, make the greatest gains on their Right, right. I mean, as I look at all this, I think back to a white paper that was put out by a a Kremlin-connected think tank back in January of 2013. And this is when Putin was just beginning to kind of double down on his kind of social conservatism messaging. It's after he gave a speech to, to a joint session of parliament criticizing the West's infertile and genderless liberalism. That, that is a, a direct quote. And this think tank put out a white paper basically arguing that there are all these wedge issues in the West along these what we call cultural issues here, right? Along sexual identity and gender relations and multiculturalism. And this is an opportunity for Russia to drive a wedge in this. And I remember I blocked it at the time. I didn't take it terribly seriously at the time. I wish I took it more seriously at the time than I did, because we're seeing this playbook actually play out now. So it's it's not like this wasn't telegraphed. I want to bring John in here. John, any reactions or responses to anything Clint said here? Well, I totally agree with Clint. And one of the things that he's you know talking about, they really haven't changed for the Russians since the Soviet days. This is the way that they kept their enemies at bay and kept their leaders in power. And they do some of these same tools inside to keep opposition at power. And one of the things Clint mentioned too here is is sort of convergence. And what's unusual here is we have a president and a party who sort of converged and taken on these this Russian disinformation and sort of pump it out themselves. And what's what's really surprising to me is just the 
the sheer amount of things where Russia and Trump are really both saying the same things, but acting in the same way, because both are interested in, in chaos. Both are interested in clouding the truth. Both believe that anybody can be bought. Both sides want to undermine, undercut and denigrate the FBI, the CIA, U.S. foreign policy elites, our relationship with U.S. allies. This is Trump and Putin, both with the exact same right. interests here. Both are peddling narratives that they know are untrue. Both, you know, have either interests aligned and not, you know, telling the truth and flooding the zone with doubt and confusion. And, you know, they're so aligned now that when Trump speaks, the Russians can just amplify it. As, as Clinton mentioned, they don't have to create the stories like they did in the Cold War that we created the AIDS crisis or or these kind of things. They just have to take what comes out of Trump's mouth and, and amplify it. And so both sides see propaganda as truth. And both sides, you know, anything that supports their narrative is deemed, quote unquote, truth. And anything that undercuts it is, quote unquote, fake news. And so, you know, there's a crony mafia-like system in Russia and if Trump had his way, we'd have the same thing here with everything is about loyalty to the boss. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, you said something, John, that I really I really agree with, and I've actually talked and written about this, is the domestic system in Russia, which is, I mean, I sometimes call it Surkovism, you know, based on Vladislav Surkov's creation of this kind of whole fake political reality in Russia, the use of the dramaturgy and the manufactured crises to, to achieve a political end. This has now been turned outward on the outside world. The other thing going on, I mean, these videos that were, you know, purportedly of ballot stuffing in Flint, Michigan, but on closer examination turned out to be a polling station in Russia where ballot stuffing was going on and some, some clever photoshopping to make the, you know, the decorations look a little bit better. And then the Tony Blinken thing that I mentioned in the intro, I mean, this just caught my attention literally yesterday as I was putting this script together, um, that they actually changed his Wikipedia page to change a quote to make it look more hawkish toward Russia. The funny thing about the quote is I don't see anything really problematic with the quote. It's just that Russia is a criminal state. I agree with that, but it's just not something you expect a secretary of state is designated to say. And in fact, Anthony Blinken did not say it, right? And it's reminiscent of, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the old Madeleine Albright story where this uh, meme was going around Russia that Madeleine Albright allegedly said that it's not fair that Russia has so much oil and the U.S. should take it from them. This is axiomatic. Russian officials believe or actually act like they believe that Madeleine Albright said this when it was a total, total fiction. And I actually found its origins. Its origins were in an article in the Rasiskaya Gazeta in, in 2006, an interview with a retired KGB general. And in this interview, the, the general said that he used to work for this super secret paranormal division of, of the KGB where they read people's minds. And I, when I was reading this, I thought I was misreading the Russian, like I was not understanding it properly and had to show it to a native Russian speaking colleague to see, make sure I was not making a mistake. But no, in fact, he was saying that. And he said when he was in Boris Yeltsin's security detail during Madeleine Albright's visit to Russia, he read her mind and understood that she believed this. Now, this was the origin of this. But then this got picked up by other media. And along the way, through the kind of telephone game, it got changed into Albright actually said this to the point now where Putin himself referenced this in one of his calls shows. So, I mean, we're seeing this. John, what I wanted to bring you in on. Go, go ahead. Did you have something to add to that? Life, the cycle of disinformation. 
Well, it's information laundering. It's effectively information yeah. laundering where John, this all kind of points to something that kind of popped up in an op-ed you wrote for The New York Times last year where you wrote about the Russian intelligence services use of something called reflexive control, which is something I'm actually fascinated with this whole concept. It's a doctrine developed by the Soviet military strategists back in the 60s that aims to compel adversaries to behave in a manner advantageous to Moscow. And it does this by kind of preemptively shaping the environment through disinformation psyops, business ties, political meddling, establishing military facts on the ground, or any combination of this. You, you describe this in your Times piece as an effort to manage the perception of adversaries so they would be fooled into acting against their own interests. The methods include distracting, exhausting, and confusing opponents in order to ultimately control their animating narrative. Are we in the West getting any better? I want to get to both of you, actually. I want to get a sense of, are we getting any better at recognizing when this is happening? Because you do have this multi-layered, joined-up process. In D.C., we tend to kind of look at this disinformation problem in isolation when it's part of this whole ecosystem that includes weaponized finance, weaponized organized crime, all sorts of other non-kinetic components that create this reflexive control situation where we, where we act in Moscow's interest. John Clint, do you see us getting any better at this? Well, I'll take a first shot. So, I mean, reflexive control is essentially, yeah, like you mentioned, covert perception management. It's really a form of political warfare. And it's an attempt to manufacture a false reality and alternative narrative that benefits them. So it's not really that different from Trump's efforts to build a fake reality that he won the election, for example. But to the question are we better off? And I would say probably, yes, we're better off, a lot due to the work of Clint and many others. I mean, in the lead up to 2016, we were so focused on terrorism that we failed really to invest in, in other threats. There was also a generally accepted but incorrect narrative that post-Soviet Russia was not a threat and that Russia should actually be a natural ally on Islamic terrorism and, and other things. And you know, one good thing about the last four years, I think that sort of narrative has been disproven. And, you know, those of us who worked on Russia things for a long time would have argued that long before. So now the issue of disinformation has taken hold in, you know, think tanks, universities, even journalists and elsewhere. And, uh, you know, we have this unique situation in the United States where the president of the United States is, be, is one of the prime purveyors of false information and even Russian propaganda. So there's still challenges. However, I mean, our, our open society creates challenges for defending against disinformation. I mean, the Russians... They knew information warfare would be successful because our companies would resist taking the quote unquote un-American step of reining in their users. They knew that they could get Americans themselves to spread and disseminate propaganda, essentially laundering their disinformation through the First Amendment. They knew that Americans have to pay for quality journalism, but the Internet makes fake news free. So I'm just saying, yes, I do think I do think we're better. You know, it's a function of 2016 of all the negative things that happened, I think. It did raise our awareness of these things. We started to focus on them now. Clint, would you agree with that? Have we gotten better at this? Yeah, I, I think definitely so. And, and, you know, what I love about it, every time John writes an article, I learn something that I didn't know because I was focused so much on terrorism. You know, we came to this through the terrorism fight my team yeah. did. So we were not we were not Russia watchers, right? Like it was about the Syrian conflict when we came onto it. And so the approach... I think we understand it better. I think where we have not fixed or repaired is that 
as long as you're defending, you're losing in information warfare. That's it. Right. So you have to advance. You know, it would be like saying, I'm just going to build the fort and I'm just going to hope for the best. Right. And I'm never going to challenge my adversary or or really push, you know, back against them. And so it's been fascinating to watch when I've uh, talked to government audiences about how they are really thinking about what they would say. But it really comes down to this weakness, which the Russians have exploited, which is we don't know what we are anymore as a country. Like we don't really have a message. And that has come out in the vote. You know, you can sense that in the vote. They have, like you said, they saw this as a way to bridge into the United States and they've been very successful at it. And it doesn't just, you know, pertain to Russia. If I have to say, at least during the counterterrorism fight, I always felt whether it was the Bush administration or Obama administration, we did have a message. Now, I may not have made sense or it could have been confusing or whatever, but we had something we were trying to advance, right? I don't know what we would advance today if we wanted to start fighting back. And if I've learned anything about the government that I'm really worried about now watching kind of appointees and the people that are rolling in is they're still treating it as a foreign problem. That's a domestic problem as well. And the Russians are on the attack in the U.S. in an information fight. They are broadcasting using Americans to advance Russian positions inside the United States. And I, I think the key thing about messaging, which I really appreciate watching the Russians and how they message and the Chinese as well, but the Russians are just so much more artful at it, is for them, it's an axis, you know, from you talked about they changed their own history to message internally. Right. And then they're doing it the other direction. It is seamless. They're inside and out focused with their with their information space and us in the U.S. going in. Yeah, I don't know how we will unwind that. I I see people talking about, hey, we got to get into this information fight, but who will do it? Who's responsible for it? We have very strong barriers between domestic and foreign. That's going to be a huge challenge, I think. Right. I mean, I'm glad you brought up this domestic aspect of it because this is another thing I've been thinking a lot about. And like, do we need a new message? Can't we just go back to the old missions? Don't we just need to learn to tell our Western story again? I mean, if you look at it now, I just saw a poll, something like only 50 percent of people in their 20s believe it's essential to live in a democracy. Right. 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 That's a problem. Right. I mean, it's at least it's a majority. But when I was a kid, it was in the 90s. Right. What's so we have to learn to tell our Western story again. We have to start teaching civics in schools again, which we don't really do anymore. That's part of it. I don't see this magical new message we have to come up with. The old message is there and the old message is good. We've just forgotten its power. If I had a takeaway that I would leave people coming into the U.S. government right now, they're talking about countering Russian influence or Chinese influence or whatever country, my position would be your counter message starts in Missouri. Like you need to figure that out, you know, as a center of gravity because they know you're weak there. And there's no entity the way I see it right now in the U.S. government that has ownership of that. And then I'll hear the dreadful the the kiss of death in D.C. is the the term working group. As soon as I hear that, I, I immediately <laughs> like surrender. I'm like, okay, if it's followed by interagency, I just literally fall face first to the ground. I'm just like, okay, whatever. But you know, like that is not going to work. I'll hear the whole of government talk and that sort of thing. It's actually not going to work. You would be better off to take, I'm just throwing things like the Lincoln Project. You know, John, essentially, that they understand how to message, right? And that it isn't foreign or domestic. It's 
you know, it's America's message, right? Like, right. how do you shape that? That's what they need, but they need it to be the government's message, right? Like, how do we do that? I spent my yeah. life overseas trying to recruit sources for the U.S. government. And, you know, the reason that the CIA often has success coming up with good sources is not because we're really sort of great intelligence officers. Like, you know, like there's other countries that are, have this sort of conspiratorial mindset and probably better at this. But we've had success because we represent the United States. And the United States was seen as something different. It wasn't most of these countries that we work in, they see their leadership as corrupt. They see that when they get elected, that their chance to steal. They see that their bosses are making money. And so in that milieu, the United States looks like something, you know, special as a rule of law. You know, it's, it's a pretty serious place. And part of the problem the last few years is we tend to be seen now as just another country where, you know, there's there's corruption and the, the leadership can just do whatever it wants. And that hurts us overseas and trying to, you know, recruit sources and doing things. And so as you know, as a CIA officer overseas, just the regular old fashioned, you know, messaging on diplomacy and radio free Europe and, you know, having a strong democracy in a, a country where, you know, you can, that's transparent and can talk about your problems. That's the stuff that's important for America, not, you know, coming up with some clever thing to try to yeah. convince people that, you know, we're better. Well, I mean, when I hear the president elect talk about leading by the power of our, our example, not just the example of our power, I think that's to kind of look at the glasses more half full than half empty here. I think they are moving in that direction. Also, John, as I was listening to you talking about this, where people just see us as just another country, this was precisely what Putin wanted to do. There's nothing special about you and your democracy and human or everybody. It's just a big naked Hobbesian struggle for power. And that's it. And everything else is propaganda. Surkov wrote an article for Nezavisamaya Gazeta last year that basically made this point um, and that we've created an algorithm that can defeat you. Is this the success of reflexive control at the end of the day when you're in a, in a very meta sense? If others around the world are looking at us as just another country, if we are looking at our institutions as record number of Americans have lost trust in our institutions, if, you know, 43 percent of young people don't think it's essential to live in a democracy, if Russia has become kind of a domestic political issue here rather than seen as a foreign policy and national security issue, does this represent the success of reflexive control? I think it does. But, you know, I think, and Clint would probably agree that the problem is we sort of largely did it to ourselves. So, yes, the Russians, this is their goal. This is what they want to do. Yes, they put a lot of things in place to reach that. But, you know, we had a sort of unique situation with this president who sort of pushed this along and now has true believers. And it goes back to that idea of convergence. It's essentially, he was a perfect weapon for them, you know, whether they knew he would be, you know, because they've been doing this stuff for years and hasn't haven't had the same kind of success, but all yeah. of a sudden they have. And so... We have to look at what's different. What's different is is Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is kind of is the old Soviet concept of the correlation of forces, right? Where they're creating these fifth columns within other countries. Clint, would you agree with that? Or was reflexive control successful in this very meta sense? Yes. And I think it also, though, speaks to currents that are outside of Russia's control, right? Which is there are some things that are going to happen, I think, in the next two years of the new administration where there is a degree of not accepting the way the world has moved or changed or is, right? The only way the Kremlin could have pulled any of this off is with the internet and social media, something they wouldn't even allow in their country 30 years ago, right? right. So there are currents. And so the question is, 
do you resist the currents that are way beyond your control and try and keep the world, you know, in your control, which we have done to a degree in America. We still want to we want to go back to the United Nations. We want to go back to the WHO. And those things are good. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those. But we should also recognize that there are elements of power that Russia is using to exert their influence and do things like reflexive control and strategically shape that have been highly effective. Just the way they deal with oligarchs and money is remarkable. And we are still walking around kind of ignoring it or thinking right. we can sanction our way out of it, right? That's not going to happen. Uh, we we just saw Rousseau, right? Like, invest right. in Kentucky, you know, like, yeah, they no, know I, it's yeah. going to happen. So, like, the way to think about it, I think, is we need to accept some of the currents that are coming our way one way or another. We need to also think of ways that we can bring things into our orbit one way or another. One of them is big tech. China's not going to have any Chinese tech company not fall in line with China. The TikTok war is indicative right. of this. Russia is not going to have that. So like, who's the American company? You go out to Silicon Valley and they'll say, we're a global company. Right, right. right. That is going to end. And so rather than trying to fight that, how do we come to terms with it? Some of those bigger shaping things, I think the next administration will have to wrestle with. And they've kind of been ignored. I think Trump is emblematic of ignoring a lot of those forces. Right. I mean, do we? You, you say we can't sanction our way out of it. I've often argued that we need to move beyond sanctions toward doctrine, toward a doctrine of non-kinetic containment to basically yeah. protect ourselves from all of these things, just as we you know, put a doctrine of containment into, into effect in 47 to, at the start of the Cold War. We need a non-kinetic one that protects, you know, not just with tanks, but our banks. Bitcoin and digital currencies is the next horizon. I mean, Russian oligarchs, I think to a degree, while still very upset about being out of the international system, are finding other opportunities through other currencies. I, I mean, look, Bitcoin is the Russian oligarch's best friend. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we've, right. we've done research and we stumble into a Bitcoin transfer here or there that goes in and out of Ukraine or Moldova or some country, right. you know. And that's probably because of banking system. Well, they're, mine, they're mining it in the occupied territories. They're in, in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and in, in the Donbass and Transnistria, they're, they're basically mining Bitcoin there. Yeah. And, and they used Bitcoin as part of the Russia uh, interference effort in 2016. Yeah. I mean, they were self-financing, which is remarkable. It's really brilliant. So I think we have to think, when I hear whole government, and rather than having a big meeting or a conference, what I would like them to think about is like, how do we do containment beyond military. And even the military folks, when I talk to them, are interested in how do we do this beyond a bin Laden raid, right? Like they've got that down, but they're even like very uh, internally, like trying to figure out how to work with partners. And they just, they haven't had that sort of leadership yet. And hopefully the, the new administration can execute that to a degree. John, anything to add before we move on? I've kind of put a label on what Clint's describing here. I call it hybrid containment. But, uh, yeah, um, I think, you know, because Clint came to this through studying, you know, anti-terror and the terrorism fight and looking at, you know, terrorism is an asymmetric form of warfare that, you know, the warfare of the weak against the strong. And really, that's what active measures in political warfare with the Russians have been up to. And so, you know, he really came into it in a, in a really useful way for us to look at it. And so one of the things I think we've learned in the last few years is that in trying to defeat this or deal with it or defend against it or whatever the right word is, we know we can't talk them out. We can't change people like this. We can't talk them out of what they believe is 
necessary for their survival. And so what's, what's really interesting to me as Biden starts to take over is we're finally starting to realize that Putin is a proud KGB officer, he's a Czechist, and we're not going to change his view of the United States. As such, like with the new administration, I don't think they think that we need to have good relations with the Kremlin. We no longer have to have these resets and this sort of always trying to to give yeah, it. To this will be the first president to come to power since Ronald Reagan without the stated desire to improve relations with Moscow. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I just want to get that in oh, there. Absolutely, absolutely agree. I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's exactly right. The former ambassador to Moscow, Michael McFaul, recently wrote something with you know his advice to the Biden administration. And it was informed by our mistakes of dealing with the Kremlin over the past decade. And so some of the things that he suggested, for example, are, you know, don't try to befriend Putin. You know, he's right. not going to change. Don't relax sanctions. Don't sacrifice other countries on the altar of better relationships with Moscow. We don't need a good relationship with Moscow. We need to contain them. You know, too often we've right. ignored Putin's bad behavior in hopes of, quote, unquote, better relations. And, you know, but really, frankly, the status quo is OK which is good because Putin can remain president until 2036 or something right. like that, right? And yeah. so what we need to do is strengthen ties with our allies. We need to support places like Ukraine. Georgia. We have to fix ourselves and look inside, reinvigorate our positive role in the world. And maybe most important, and what Clint gets to in some of this Bitcoin thing, is we need to focus on and figure out a, a strategy to deal with Russia's dirty money yep. and money laundering yep. in the West. Because part of their successful subversion has been their ability to play on the greed of Western yeah. leaders build illicit networks and, and use them for you know their purposes. Yeah, no, I've I've been saying for a while corruption is the new communism and Russia's black cash is the new red menace. And we have to learn to kind of think in those terms. We did a great program a couple of weeks ago with Josh Rudolph, who's an Obama administration and a C official dealing with the dirty money problem. But John, you've provided us with a perfect segue because what I want to talk about below the fold here is the linkage between the kind of jihadists inactive measures or the uh, the conceptual linkage that I could not ignore was as I was reading Clint's uh, book. So in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and take a look at Russian active measures as a form of asymmetrical warfare, weapons of the weak, not unlike those deployed by jihadist groups. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from an undisclosed location in the Washington, D.C. area is John Seifer, a 28-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, who also serves as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the agency's activities globally. John's also the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal and, like me, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Also joining us from New York is former FBI Special Agent Clint Watts, Distinguished Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a non-resident fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Clint is also author of the must-read book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи не слушает. Россия сегодня вступает сейчас. в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Делаю Я уже говорит о сотрудниках безопасности. С новым 
гонам вас. С новым веком. One way to look at Russian active measures is to look at them as asymmetrical warfare. The only tactics available to a weak adversary which cannot compete militarily or economically with the West. Clint, in messing with the enemy, you begin by describing the online tactics of jihadists, such as Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, which you were tracking. And you end up kind of, it almost feels like you inadvertently bumped into these Russian trolls that you didn't even really know at the start were Russian trolls. And this is kind of what brought you into the, the world of tracking Russian online activity. You, you bumped into some trolls who were pushing the Russian agenda in Syria. You write... The Islamic State social media radicalization and recruitment methods were unprecedented in the terrorism world, but they paled in comparison with what was emerging from Russia. For the benefits of those out there who have not read your book, and shame on you if you have not read this book, um, can you expand and elaborate on this a little bit, particularly what you call the hacker, honeypot, heckler collective of Russian trolls, which is a very catchy way to put it. Yeah, so uh, what I'd say is, Brian, is like, The Russians just combined what everybody was doing into one package. And by that, I mean that I call them the third generation of advanced persistent manipulators. So if you look at the late 2000s, we were looking at hackers stealing information to drive an agenda online by exposing it. And that was uh, anonymous, lulsec, you know, some of these groups. And the Russians were there too, but doing it in a much more acute way, right? So the They would hack into a former dissident or a former spy's computer plant child porn or some sort of compromising information, then dump it out uh, into the open or, or use it to manipulate. But that was very tactical, right? It was like single. Then I really believe that Surkov, Gerasimov, all of these folks that were kind of in that early 2010s saw two things happening concurrently. One, they saw how extremists were using social media to rally people prolifically through endless content production, you know, and engaging and building diaspora communities and audiences around it. And two, they saw anonymous collectives appearing in person to overthrow governments in the Arab Spring or occupy Wall Street in the US. And so I think they were like, man, we did all that active measure stuff, you know, which was uh, the Americans TV show basically, right? And that was like really hard. But look at what these guys are doing online. You know, how can we jump into that? And so you look at the current of where they were picking up on this, 2012 and 13, they started taking each of these elements, developing them individually at first. And then I think they realized like, oh, we can put this all together. And Ukraine became the test bed for all of it. Oh. And so uh, Rick Stingle, who I'm oftentimes on MSNBC with, and he was yep. at the State Department, does a great job in his book on information warfare. Describe me what it was like seeing that in Ukraine, right? Like they were starting to detect it. And the second place that the Russians were, were using it was in Syria because they had entered into Syria in a big way. Mm -hmm. They had already developed this out. They were like, we can use this troll farm approach to rely on two biases in social media, confirmation bias and implicit bias. We can tell people what they want to hear 80% of the time. Well, we want them to hear 20% of the time with trolls. And then we can look like and talk like the audience so that you look like college football fan dad, you know, in Ohio and right. like a woman who likes pets in Arizona or whatever. You can make that so that people tend to pay attention to that. They combine that with the hacking to power influence. And so what I think is interesting watching is extremists. They were low funded, 
lower tech to a degree could not endure because Intel agencies like where John was at, whatever, pounding their doors or hitting them with missiles, right? Like law enforcement is after them. What they were able to do was just scale that and sort of integrate all those functions together. And that's what I find remarkable about the Russians now is now, you know, the Russians are great at the art, but they don't even have the tech that China does. And so like China is now taking in some of that art and putting their big tech on top of it. Mm -hmm. Same with political campaigns. You see that sort of evolution to where Russia, I think, sometime will be just kicking their feet in the dirt going why doesn't anybody listen to me anymore? And they'll point to some Chinese synthetic media that is bombarding Africa or Latin America, right? Or a political campaign or an oligarch or somebody who can do their own media outlet doing the same thing uh, on scale because okay. they have the resources. Right. I like to remind people that Bloomberg has a TV station, right? And right. so like that's when you look at who can enter into the media space in a big way, there are other actors in there now. Not that they're doing disinformation, but I'm saying that it's really about volume and scale and tech, you know, in the future. Right. So what I'm hearing here is that the Russians learned a lot of lessons from the jihadists about how to do this on the cheap. But over time, this is not sustainable and they're, they're going to fall behind sooner or later. I, I think that's consistent with both hackers and with propagandists like extremist groups is they don't have the resources and they don't necessarily know each other or have those connections uh-huh. and the ability to organize and scale. And so if you watch like Anonymous and LulzSec, the fact that they were all anonymous and didn't know each other meant they got penetrated by law enforcement and intel. Right, right. You look at the terrorist over time, you can't sustain that forever uh, once you have, you know, missiles striking you in Syria. But they understood the principles of all of those things and could really blend them together. Right. John, we got time for one more comment because I'm getting notice from the virtual control room that, our <laughs> that the clock is ticking. I want to get your final thoughts on what Clint was saying there, because I, I think the notion that the Russians learned this from the jihadists, but over time, they're not going to be able to sustain it. Would you agree with that? I do agree with it. And, you know, their focus, so focused on staying in power, keeping themselves rich and keeping their enemies sort of at bay is mean they haven't invested in in their own economy and in growth in the, inside their economy. And this is sort of, you know, they're, they're slowly losing the bigger war while they fight these successful battles. And for me, when you guys talk about hybrid war or asymmetric war, you know, what the terrorists do is, you know, one difference is, you know, it's very clear to us that the terrorists are the enemy when they're doing this to us. And one of the problems we've had with the Russians is they have consistently been attacking us, whether it's information warfare, political warfare, whatever you want to call it. That's the actions of an enemy. They are the enemy, and the problem is we don't treat them like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these are the these are the tools, the weapons of the weak against the strong. And so the thing is, we need to think about we're the strong one, we're the big one. What is it that we have that they can't compete with? What is the, you know? And one of the things that a savvy leader like Putin does have to do is, if he's going to use these tools, he can only push so far. He can continue to push, and continue to cause pain, continue to cause problems, up until the point where the Americans actually start to focus and, and push back. Because if we actually push back, they can't handle it because they're the weaker power. And so they've, they've lucked out from having Donald Trump, who, you know, is willing to sort of support them, you know, in any way. But, you know, if they had done things, for example, like, I think one of the reasons people worry about them changing votes, I was never worried about that because I right. think Putin knows that, you know, where the line is. If you're the weaker power, if you start changing Americans' votes, a lot of Americans who don't pay any attention to Russia all of a sudden would write their opinion and say, whoa, and say, my government has to do something about this. And then you turn the big, 
the, you know, the, the dinosaur back against against the Russians. And so I think there's two things that matter to Putin, power and money. And I think we have to hold those things sort of at risk for him. If he's going to continue to mess with us, mess with our allies, we have to make clear to him that, right. you know, he and his, his cronies are not going to continue to get rich. And, you know, we will actually over time, you know, threaten his power. I mean, it's not the Ukrainians and Belarusians are showing that they're willing to risk their lives for justice. And so I'm I'm sure Putin has to worry about the long term hope for Russia, because at some point Russians might say to themselves, hey, why is it that we're putting up with, you know, a poor economy and, and being always treated like we're the enemy? And so I think just we don't need to get over focused on Russia, but we have to realize what they're doing to us is, is the actions right. of an enemy. Yeah, no, and that's a, a good note to wind up on. These are conversations we will continue to have on this program going forward. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Ripple Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name's Brian Whitmer. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in the D.C. area is John Seifer, a 20-year veteran the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, who also serves as a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides the agency's activities globally. John's also the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Also joining us from New York has been former FBI Special Agent Clint Watts, a distinguished research fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and a non-resident fellow of the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Clint is also the author of the must-read book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a social media world of hackers, terrorists, Russians, and fake news. Gentlemen, thank you both for a fascinating and enlightening discussion. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure, Brian. My undisclosed location. I think I gave away clues by all the work that's going on outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'd also like to thank our production team. Lance League is in the virtual control room. Lance keeps all the lights on and the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn, who handles our all-important post-production duties, which make all of us sound better than we really do. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of the Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. We will have a very special guest who will help us understand what kind of Russia policy we can expect from the incoming Biden administration. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. 